Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. The dire wolves in this episode are to to the Starks as the news is to Huey Lewis. Mm. I think okay. that Huey Lewis needs the news more than the news needs Huey Lewis. Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This is the podcast where we are obligated by law to say the word trope 19 times an episode. This week, I will have on a familiar voice, Aaron, Boss Mang Aaron. Aaron, uh, my co-author, twice over. Aaron, founder of Bald Move. We'll hear from him on Chapter 9. That's Tyrion's first POV chapter. Also, we will check in with Steve who has watched the final two episodes of season one. Ned's dead, baby. Ned's dead. I want to take a moment and thank the listeners of this podcast. This was an experimental 10-week season, and I realized that this was off the beaten path for the Bald Move community. And the numbers suggest that uh, that you're listening, <laughs> The numbers are good. The numbers are good for this podcast. So we are considering possibly extending this electric bookaloo experiment beyond chapter nine. If you could, if you've enjoyed any of this, please rate and review uh, wherever you do such things. Share a link. Share a link on social media. Send an email attachment to a friend. Uh, Transcribe this podcast Type it up, roll it up, put it in a bottle, throw it into the ocean. We'd love to get our numbers a little bit higher so we can get some regular ad partners. That would be fantastic. What I can say is that Steve and I will be doing a bonus podcast next week. We'll be answering a few listener emails. You can send feedback to book at baldmove.com. Without further ado, here is Bosmang Aaron Hubbard. Aaron, welcome back to your own podcast. Yeah, man, you got the band back together again. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, di- the dynamic duo, the Gods of Thrones boys, We're ready to burn the steps down, profaning the sacred. <laughs> One last heist, you know, then we can go into retirement. Yeah, yeah, All right, yeah. so Aaron, what is your relationship to your own voice? Ha. Um. You know, that's a good question, because I used to share a revulsion of hearing myself recorded, and like, you know, if you ever you hear it on answering machines or whatever. Yeah, as do most people, it, right? And it was cringy as fuck to hear that, but then I noticed something, and I don't know exactly when I lost it, but somewhere over the last few years what I sound like inside my head and outside my head have merged because I've heard myself so much on podcasts and videos and editing them that like, there's no gap. There's no, 
It's like if I walked around naked all day, it's like, yep, this is what my body looks like. Uh, I, I feel like I'm vocally naked. I'm just aware of all my flaws. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I've embraced yeah. them. This is an interesting question of human perception because you've probably trained yourself to hear yourself differently than most people do because you're listening to recordings of yourself so often. Mm-hmm. And usually the critical ear, like, what am I doing wrong here? Yeah. How many times am I going to say, uh, in a 30 second spe- uh, span of right. time? <laughs> that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah I, I hear that like the that gap is because, you know, the acoustics inside your head are way different than the acoustics outside. So you actually have a real difference in the, the perception of your voice inside versus outside yeah. your head. But I guess if you listen to it enough, it kind of your brain normalizes it. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It normalizes it. And this is sort of a feature of human perception. Whereas like I don't you, you've done a bit of sailing, right? Sure. Good friend of mine is a longtime sailor and he can see wind. Before he feels it, because he's mm. trained his eyes to notice what's happening on the waves. There's lots of cultures who have like several more colors than we do. And and so you can actually train your perception to pick up things that you previously couldn't. And my guess is that you, you've trained your perception to hear yourself differently than how you did before. <laughs> See, I always thought it was more of like the saturation theory. Like if you grew up on a pig farm, you don't smell pig yeah. shit. Uh, so like, uh, I've been living in the pig farm of my voice for the last few years. So I just don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't hear how offensive it is anymore. <laughs> you've been wallowing in your own muck. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've saturated that, that, uh, aural nerve that that's uh-huh. offended by your own voice. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Aaron, what did you have for breakfast? Oh, this is interesting because my wife sat me down and made me watch, uh, what is that, Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey? Sure. She didn't make yeah. me, but I wasn't super excited to watch it, but she had seen it and said it was amazing. Um, and she's right. Uh, that's actually a really good DC movie. It's really, really fun. Huh. Okay. Uh, but Harley Quinn eats what she describes as the most perfect breakfast sandwich, which is uh, like an egg and bacon sandwich on sh- uh, ciabatta bread. Mm-hmm. And Cecily made us those sandwiches this morning, and oh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I ask, yeah, the reason I ask, oh gosh, my breakfast was horrible. It was like egg whites and like cauliflower cakes. Uh, horrible, horrible. But Tyrion, as, as ba- yeah, the, the burn <laughs> black bacon. He Tyrion had for breakfast, he had bread, uh, little fish, like, I don't know, sardines or something, dark uh-huh. beer and blackened bacon. How does that sound to you? It sounds like uh, that bacon sounds uh, like eating cancer. Uh, that's uh, I mean, I it's funny because I grew up thinking that is hated bacon. But yeah. when I became an adult, I realized this was because my mom burnt bacon. Like I thought bacon was this salty bark that, you, uh, you know, you endured on the side of eggs or something. If you want a little bit of protein, I had no idea that you could get like thick cut bacon that you didn't yeah. have to burn bacon. So like <laughs> it's kind of like it, it's it's a little bit finding out like Tyrion likes his steak well done with ketchup. Yeah. Like he's just doing it wrong. There's no other like he's such a well-read, smart, considerate guy and he's just doing bacon wrong in my Yeah, opinion. he actually requests <laughs> it that way. He goes out of his mm-hmm. way to say burn it black. Yeah. I mean, bacon a, a bit of crispy bacon, like I think that there's like it can't be just flaccid and soggy. There has to yeah, be yeah. a little bit of a backbone and spine oh, to absolutely. it. But 
But yeah, you get the full burnt black. That's uh, ugh. That's that's eating salty charcoal. It seems like. Okay, so. now what if what if I served you sardines and dark beer for breakfast? I I wonder if Tyrion's done some kind of crazy reading of a mad maester that has some kind of aphrodisiac. <laughs> like you know, this is uh, Westeros Viagra. Yeah, uh, this, right. this support his other appetites because I, uh, yes. it's such a weird combo. He was reading Archmaester Libido's long treatise on <laughs> orgies, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the art of love as opposed to the art of war. <laughs> All right, here. I'm going to do a quick synopsis on this chapter, and then we can fill in any, any gaps in our conversation. Mm-hmm. All right, so we are covering chapter nine. This is Tyrion's first point of view chapter. We meet Tyrion in the library at Winterfell, and he's been reading all night. And so he gets up and he talks to a Septon to tell him to return the scrolls. He goes down, mm-hmm. uh, he discusses Bran's situation with Joffrey and the Hound. And it seems that this is about four days since Bran's fall. And then after chiding and disciplining his nephew... With a couple noteworthy slaps and a little exchange with the hound, he goes and he meets his brother, his sister, and his nephew and his niece who are breaking their fast. And he has a conversation about Bran with them. And th- that is the chapter in a nutshell. It's only six pages. and But I think it's doing a lot of heavy lifting for that short of space. What do you think? Yeah, no, I was actually shocked at how short it was, too, when I got because, like, you know, I I decided to sit down and read um, all the chapters leading up to this and do Mm -hmm. my due diligence. And it had been a long time since I read and I really got into it. Like by the time I was getting to the Tyrion's chapter, I was like, man, if I wasn't rereading the Dune series. But um, I was having a lot of fun. I get this Tyrion chapter. I'm like, all right, here's this is this is the assignment. And then uh, it was it was like a roller coaster ride. It was it was over before. Um, it felt like it began, but yeah, I was just struck when I was reading these early chapters of seeing like how Martin was still kind of rounding in his gardener way himself into some of these characters. Like what, un- what, what shameless, unrepentant flounces both Jon Snow and Arya are. Like, yes. like prone yeah. to tears burning with rage, red faced, shameful, storming out of rooms and great halls because yeah. they're embarrassed and and how like that doesn't stick around very long. And, and you know, in chapter five, you have Tyrion, uh, you know, George Martin playing around with, you know what, maybe I'm going to have him be a tumbler. That'll be cute. Have the little yeah, guy right. have a tumble routine. And he, he mentioned that's being one of his few regrets of, of, of his early characterizations. But just like. He is. He's doing. He's. 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 He's hitting all the notes. Like why he wants us clearly to love Tyrion. So he paints him as very smart. He paints him as kind of cool and detached from the family that he started. You know, the the Martins already ten chapters in painting as as kind of dastardly. Or I guess nine chapters. Yeah. Ten with the prologue. And you know, he's funny. He he's he's this one down position. Like he's he talked in the previous chapter to Jon Snow that, you know, all bastards or all dwarfs are bastards. Yet he has the temerity to slap the crown prince. 
Um, something yes. that even a very dangerous character seems to think is dangerous. And he's got this devil may care attitude towards his family. Um, and you wonder how much of his family secrets do, does he know? Cause we've in, got introduced to some of his family secrets in the previous That's chapter. Right. It's a lot. Like you said, it's a lot in six pages. Yeah. Okay. So two things, you said something that I hadn't thought of before, but really makes a lot of sense. So we're meeting these characters for the very first time in these first few chapters. But in a way, Martin's meeting them for the first time. If ever you've you know, tried your hand at writing fiction, mm-hmm. you know, these these characters are not usually not fully formed in your head. You kind of meet them. You discover them as you're writing them. And so these first meetings are really Martin giving a go, like trying something on for size Tyrion's a yeah. tumbler. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe he's. Yeah. Maybe in the next time I introduce him, he'll be, you know, massaging his legs because they really don't work very well, and uh-huh. one of his shoulders is rounded in in a twisted way because of his entire body's twisted. It, it almost looks like he has gotten rid of the <laughs> this able-bodied Tyrion uh, that we've met just just a couple chapters ago. He's already. Mm-hmm discovered something that's more interesting about Tyrion that he wants to play up a little bit differently. Yeah. The other thing is he does this kind of like, um, you know, anytime you want to establish, like on Star Trek The Next Generation, anytime you want to establish a character as a badass, you just have him kick Worf's ass. And Worf is the (laughs) toughest guy in the Enterprise. And this guy just threw Worf through a bulkhead. Oh, my God. He's amazing. And like they do a little bit of this with Tyrion where like Tyrion has outstudied a Septon. You know, like these, this, this stuffy cleric who spends his time probably cloistered. Like, especially, what does a Septon have to do at Winterfell? He just spends his time cloistered reading books. And he, and, and Tyrion reads him into the dirt. He's like, you know, Tyrion's gone all night long, gone through candles, gone through mugs of ale, and this guy passed out over his history, like in the wee hours of the morning. It's a little bit like showing that Tyrion is a more serious student than the serious professional student class of, of Westeros. Yeah. Not only that, but he notices what the Septon's reading, like the Septon's like passed out on his book. He notices Mm -hmm. what the Septon's reading and he's like, Ah, typical. Of course, the Septon would be reading that idiot. Yeah, and it's yeah him him instructing the Winterfell librarian and how to better look after yeah. his his stock. It's 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 pretty good. Pretty good introduction of as a this guy as a scholarly person. All right, so Aaron, this is the guest choice portion of the podcast, wherein you can choose to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or we can just climb the ladder of chaos together. I mean, I think we would be sued for podcasting malpractice if we didn't talk about the character Tyrion in his first named chapter, right? I th- yeah, exactly. What do you say about Tyrion? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a couple statements to see what sticks. Um, okay. Is Tyrion a Gary Stew? A lot of so Gary Stew, if you don't know, is a, a literary term. Uh, most common you hear it says a Mary Sue, where right, right. an author self-inserts themselves into the material and give them all the awesome qualities and maybe they have a couple of apparently negative qualities they're actually pluses like you know you look at uh, bella from twilight you know and Mm -hmm. she's uh she's a misfit outcast teenager with super pale sallow skin but she also is chased after by by the most beautiful boy in school and etc etc um a lot of people say that like sam tarley is the gary stew that's the um george r R. martin but like, is it secretly Tyrion? Well, I think that with 
a Mary Sue character, in addition to having some of the notable qualities of the author, it all this character also has to sort of achieve some fantasy that the authors are always had. Like, like, you know, like, so let's say George Martin has always sort of, you know, lamented his own body, but he's, he's always felt like he's pretty quick witted and this mm-hmm. all fits Tyrion. But what's the one thing that, that Tyrion can do that George Martin's always wanted to do that can only be fulfilled by a fictional character? Um, I think that have we'd sex have to with multiple n- women at a time while he's <laughs> quaffing beer. <laughs> so yeah, so Tyrion's really good at that, uh, and so maybe maybe George Martin can live out his weird perverted fantasies through Tyrion. And in which case, I think mm-hmm. that I think that many characters in this narrative maybe Mary Sue's for That's Martin's w- That's perverted <laughs> perverted uh, ideation. It's it's funny because the Tyrion is like this character um, who had not the I always thought like it like I think it's interesting to think about what would happen to these people um, if the events of the book didn't happen. You know, like mm. what if the, the days of Robert Baratheon are allowed to you know run out peacefully? Um, and I think of like, you know, Tyrion would be such a boring character. Because he would continue to kind of just go about Westeros, do whatever he wants, um, read a bunch of books, uh, frequent a bunch of uh, sex workers, and probably drink himself into an early grave. But because he finds himself kind of plunged into the middle of this murder mystery, that is the kind of like match that sets off the powder keg that is the post-rebellion Westeros Seven Kingdoms, uh, he gets to be this dynamic figure of of destiny and it's super frustrating to talk about because we ultimately don't know where that ends for him it's funny you say that because i feel like i look back at these early Tyrion years with nostalgia like oh wasn't he fun when he was just sort of like saying screw you to everyone he meets and he kind of uh-huh. understands everyone's motives better than they understand them themselves and he's just drinking and just he's just a hedonist and i and mm-hmm. when he becomes hand of the king and when he becomes a prisoner and then exile it's almost like oh i kind of kind of wish we could have fun Tyrion again but yeah. what you're saying that makes a lot of sense is that that Tyrion couldn't have existed for very long and remained interesting we really need to see him go into the pit and try to think his way out of the pit in order for him to yeah. really get interesting, right? The other thing about this chapter that I found really interesting is that Tyrion... Well, first of all, this isn't just the first POV chapter from a Lannister. This is the first POV chapter of anyone who resides in King's Landing. Mm. Uh, um, so we are being introduced to people like the Hound and Joffrey and Cersei and Jamie and Marcella, all through Tyrion's point of view. And... In, se- in a very short amount of pages, Tyrion has a much different interaction with all of these characters. And so what we see here is we're seeing the politics of King's Landing for the first time through the eyes of someone who knows that world pretty well. And I'm thinking specifically of the Joffrey interaction. And it's almost like Tyrion knows very well that Anything he does to slight Joffrey's, it may come back on him <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
In fact, the hound says, look, he's going to remember that. So, I don't know if that shows lack of foresight or whether he just thinks I'll deal with that when when the time comes. But that's an interesting dynamic that's going to have major consequences later on. Yeah, um, that's the funny thing. It's like for a gardener, he really gardened himself in some good situations because this, you know, his nephew rem- will remember that is going to pay off handsomely in the next novels where his nephew is going to be elevated to boy king. Yeah. And Tyrion's going to have this like, well, I have the cloak of my father's author- ultimate authority protecting me, but, you know you can feel his kind of frustration and fear with like, you know, working with this material he's got and like, you know, what do we do about this guy? But like you know, all these things that he did kind of cavalierly thinking that he would be deck, you know, maybe a decade, maybe multiple decades away. Uh, maybe he'd be dead. And like I said, drunk himself into a grave before he has to deal with all this sure. stuff. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, fuck it. Because ultimately that I, I was, I struck reading this when you look at kind of the, you know, Jamie's deadly, uh, his father always travels with an honor guard. Uh, Joffrey has the hound as a sworn shield. I'm kind of amazed that Tyrion doesn't have some form of protection. Like, the Braun relationship works so well, and it's another thing that feels like Martin kind of gardened himself into. It feels, Tyrion feels kind of naked without, yeah, you know, someone to back up his swagger and bluster. You got to wonder, like... When he's been wandering the Seven Kingdoms and kind of reading books and doing like and, and, and insulting people and having this barbed tongue, like, why hasn't a commoner like put an end to this guy? Uh, well, what's what's protected his, him? Yeah, his interaction with the Hound is really interesting because there's a decided class distinction between these two. The Hound is towering over him. The Hound, mm-hmm. the, he's, he's just this muscled, burnt-faced brute. With this raspy voice who could end Tyrion at any moment. And mm-hmm. Tyrion, he just knows, look, I'm of higher rank socially, politically. He just knows he's of higher rank. And so that's his armor. He just trusts that everyone's going to abide by these social cues. And he's basically at the top of this pecking order. And he uses that like armor. Mm-hmm. And that can get you pretty far. In the Seven Kingdoms, it seems, uh, as long as you're traveling with people that adhere to the social cues um, and can right. be swayed by money and can be outwitted, you know, Tyrion mm-hmm. can get pretty far, you know, with just his brains and his purse. Right. Just, yeah. I And I, I get what you're saying, because, like, I don't... Did you watch The New Pope? No. Okay, so the new pope, um, John Malkovich plays the titular new pope, and he, um, co- he's like a, he, he comes from England, which is unusual for a pope, uh-huh. uh, and he's of the he's he's in, in the upper 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 class, like he's a member of he's he's royalty, uh, he's uh-huh. got blue blood, he's fabulously wealthy, and at one point one of his underlings are trying to blackmail him with a scandal because he's also a heroin addict. Uh-huh. Uh, mild spoilers for the new pope and he says scan he says something like you know scandals are the concern of the petite bourgeoisie i was taught that uh form polished to perfection uh equals like this unassailable regal armor that you know the lesser people can't really touch and there's it, it's kind of yeah like um if you just carry yourself as better than everyone and you can fool your lessers into thinking that that's some kind of ironclad law, 
then it is something like armor that you can wear. But like you just think about like, you know, what if he runs into like biter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or right. like, uh, what if he runs into something's got his teeth filed down and he's just, you know, one bad day away from being, you know, beheaded or sent to the uh, sent to the black and he's got nothing to lose. Like, how has he not ran into somebody like that in his, you know, what, right. is he 30? No, he's not. He's not quite 30 in this, is he? He's in his 20s. I get the sense that he is. Okay, so this is interesting because we know that Ned and Jamie both fought in Robert's Rebellion, right? Right. So they were, and we know that Ned is supposed to be in his, around his 30, you know, mid to late 30s. Yeah, um, he's, got, he's got gray in his beard, which makes him look older than his mid 30s yeah. that he is. But yeah. So my guess is that Tyrion has to be younger than 30. That would be my guess. Yeah. Jamie, Jamie's yeah. the older brother. Yeah, that's, right. just, that's just my guess at this point. And yet, here he is. He's been walking around, let's say, for 20 years as a really good poker player, mm. but perpetually without any face cards. It's like he can sit down mm-hmm. at the table, and he doesn't have any tells, and he can he can bluff his way pretty well. You know, he knows how to read the other characters at the table. But eventually, someone's going to figure out that you've never played a face card. And right. I don't know how long you can live... <laughs> live a charmed life in that in that fashion. Well, so. it's a good fa- it's a good thing he finds Bran or uh, Bron yeah, later right. on because he might have he might have gotten to a situation there at the Erie where he had played his last card until Bron decided why not? I like the size of that purse. <laughs> you know, you mentioned s- something interesting about like the fact that this is the first time we get an internal POV of the Lannister or like any of these people from the court and yeah. yeah. You know, Martin has already set up like the people from King's Landing to be these untrusty kind of untrustworthy, non-serious hedonists compared to like the 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 somber and serious and honorable Starks. Yeah. And it's so rare that when you flip the camera, like think about in Star Wars when, you know, we met the rebels and we've met the Empire and then we finally get an interior of the like we go to Grandma Tarkin's uh, boardroom and he's having an evil boardroom meeting and (laughs) no one there is like anti the empire's agenda right there's like some people being like let's do evil and the other people's like well we gotta be careful about doing evil because we do evil too often too fast and we're (laughs) just going to get and the other guy's like well it doesn't matter because we got the big evil beach ball like he but no one's like he's having debate like you know actually the rebels have a point you know or uh, and when we get to this, we, we flip the POV over to the quote unquote bad guys. Um, our first character is full of that hinting that he knows his family's dangerous secrets, that he might not be entirely on the, their side, that there is some intrigue here, that there are some. This is not entirely a house undivided. And it interestingly, like Game of Thrones instantly becomes more interesting because of it. It's just like, again, like if you go back to um, uh, the Lord of the Rings, you never go to like, you know, Saruman and he's having private regrets and reflections about how he betrayed <laughs> Gandalf. It's all just power and for the one ring and for the Tower of Baradur. And, you know, it's like there's already these these multifaceted sides, which is why everyone yeah. fell in love with Martin. Why we wish he'd start writing again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let me read this little passage here. This is uh, about Jamie. So he says, Mm -hmm. he has a large heart, our Robert, Jamie said with a lazy smile. There was very little that Jamie took seriously. Tyrion knew that about his brother and forgave it. During all the terrible long years of his childhood, 
Only Jamie had ever shown him the smallest measure of affection or respect. And for that, Tyrion was willing to forgive him almost anything. And just in that little space, here's this character that just a few pages ago pushed a kid out the window. Mm-hmm. So Jamie Lannister is the villain of the story at this point. And yet now we've learned that this character, Tyrion, had a very hard childhood. He's a disappointment to his father. That his sister has always sort of loathed him. And yet his brother has always shown him kindness and respect. Or not always, mm-hmm. but um, he's, he's the one guy. that. Yeah. And, so much so that Tyrion is willing to forgive him almost anything. And so right away, Jamie is this complex character who can act with virtue as a villain or can act in ignoble ways as a hero. And we're not, I mean, at this point, I think we he's a villain who can be nice sometimes. But I think that that gets swapped eventually. Yeah, he's there like in, it's amazing how quickly martin kind of like sketches that like in a few sentences with his interaction with john in a previous chapter you find out that you know his dad hates him because he's a dwarf and moreover also because uh you know he killed his mother in childbirth and everyone kind of and you see that you know with uh right before that passage you just read uh you hear uh when cersei sees him his sister peered at him with the same expression of faint distaste she had worn since the day he was born that's just right. so quickly sketching out the family dynamics and then you, you hit with the quote that you read and man the almost or the most anything there's doing a lot of work because exactly. he's really creating this this cognitive dissonance in the mind of the reader like man are we really like this Tyrion guy and uh hate that freaking jamie god threw a child out the window but he's the only person that loved Tyrion. oh my god what does that say about me what does that say about jamie what does that say about Tyrion? it's just such an effective and quick sketch of these family dynamics that you've got him down cold and he spent maybe six or seven sentences total describing them and everything else is going to play out from this. Exactly. And we know, so Tyrion's kind of play in the room. He says something along the lines of, yeah, I think uh, the the boy, the the Stark boy might live. And Mm. he notices this glance that Cersei and Jamie share. And Martin doesn't say much about it, but we get the sense that Tyrion knows these people. He knows them pretty well, and he has a sense that they had something to do with the fact that Bran fell out the window. So, when he says he's willing to forgive him most anything, mm-hmm. it's almost to say, yeah, this is my brother. I love him. And, and moreover, he was my only friend as a, as a child. And uh, even if he's in love with his twin sister, even if he pushed a kid out the window, my love is not going to waver. See, I think I think that what Martin's doing with that uh, forgive him most anything is introduce some doubt into our mind as a reader of like where that line of forgiveness would, you know, mm. like he does. It's uh, not unqualified. So we're like, I wonder if he knew the truth about Bran, if he huh. would turn against him. Um, now it turns out probably not like Tyrion loves Jamie, uh, almost, almost limitlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and his rejection of him eventually is going to be something that haunts him, uh, and, and, the books to come. But I, I do think that Martin's pretty smart of, of, of le- keeping that card pretty close to his vest so that the audience can form their own opinions and get a little bit, you know, we're going to fall even deeper in love with, with Tyrion as this book goes, 
uh, ahead, and we're going to think Jamie is even bigger and bigger shit as things go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even something interesting here about like, because this is the first, I think, introduction for the rest of the royal family, like Marcella and Tommen. And I think it's interesting that he described like, you know, Tommen's very sweet, says, I don't want Brandon to die. Um, and this is on the back of, you know, Ned's musings that we need to I need to bring Brand to court because, you know, he's sweet natured and he likes everybody. And Rob and Joffrey have bad blood and, you know, decades from now that could be bad. So let's have some best fr- friends in the mix. And, yeah, right. you know, just as an aside, it's like you you, re- you imagine a world in which Bran had gone to court and him and Tommen were best buddies. And, you know, right. But. He says something about, like, he's a sweet boy, not like his brother, which, you know, we're still trying to figure out how we feel about Joffrey at, at this stage. But then it says, but then Jamie and Tyrion were somewhat less than, like, peas in a pod themselves. And early on, you think about, like, how that is limited to their physical appearances. You know, Jamie's this paragon of, of beauty and yeah. manly strength and martial prowess. And, uh, you know, Tyrion is the opposite of that. But... It's funny that in the morality game, they kind of like pass that P back and forth between each other. Like they both do pretty despicable and reprehensible things. Um, you know, they, yes, Jamie's. They do. Yeah. And, so it's in like, fact, uh, you know, Tyrion, we, we often want to forget this about Tyrion, but he falls in love with this sex worker and he eventually mm-hmm. murders her. This is Tyrion, who we all lo- know and love. Chokes her to death in a murderous rage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But we learned that about Tyrion pretty late into his narrative arc. Um, right. First thing we learn about Jamie is that he's a child killer. And then mm-hmm. we have to kind of re-educate ourselves along the way about oh actually he's more complex than that but it's it's interesting that the that arc happens in reverse with Tyrion, where we yes. like him immediately we think he's amazing and then we're kind of maybe shocked at what he ends up doing and you know it's not just like he he goes through a pretty f- cruel phase where he's very cruel to penny uh the dwarf uh, companion that he's forced to be with and this troop of slaves um, he kind of turns into like a real Jamie Lannister ass shit, but like Jamie in the same part in the book is well on to his way of redemption. Like yes. he's on his tour of Westeros and we're starting to change our opinion of him and all that kind of stuff or rooting for him to get a sword arm back where Tyrion is wallowing in the mud in the late, uh, later books of uh, Song of Ice and Fire. So yeah, this is Tyrion's where did horse go face? Yeah. It's weird. It's like, is it impossible for both brothers to share the light at the same time? Like the, the, if one of them comes to light, the other has to go to darkness what kind of well, yin and yang is, is martin playing with here okay notable introductions all right so there are some really superficial introductions like uh for instance winterfell has a library but the notable introduction that i noticed in this chapter is that we have this first hint that bran is in this coma but that he tends to do better if his wolf is by his side yeah. So they try to shut the wolf out of the room and his heartbeat slows and he starts to, you know, languish. And mm-hmm. the wolf wants to get in the room and finally they let the wolf back in the room and then he starts doing better. And I wonder mm-hmm. if this is just the first introduction of this sort of warg psychic connection between Bran and his animal. Yeah, there's but it's it's fascinating to see the hints of it for sure. And Tyrion actually says, 
I think the wolf is keeping him alive. Maybe like speaking with more knowledge than he really has. Uh, and I, and we yeah. know that Tyrion is a kind of a cynic when it comes to these things, but it's almost like he's dropping that little clue for us. Right. That, that there's, there's a connection between these that, that it's more than just sort of the, your usual owner pet relationship. Yeah, and you can, it's easy to excuse it and interpret it multiple ways, right? Because he could just be saying, well, he's a Stark and their sigil is the dire wolf. It's like that animistic kind of like, you know, totem kind of relationship. Right. But he's also accidentally just saying the literal, you know, quote unquote scientific truth here that <laughs> there is a symbiotic right. relationship and they do draw strength from each other and they share a very real spirit, mystical, you know, green seer type connection here. Well, there's a lot of God talk between the Lannisters in the way that they are, you know, sharing playful banter. Like he tells yeah. jo Joffrey, you know, you should go visit them and tell them that your prayers go with them. And then Cersei says, these northern gods are really cruel. And it's almost like the Lannisters are speaking this language that everyone else is speaking. But they also mm -hmm. know that there's a subtext there. So, so we're not mm -hmm. sure whether Tyrion is actually speaking his true sense of this war connection or whether mm. he's just sort of speaking with the parlance of his day. And that parlance kind of includes this superstition from time to time. Well, especially compare and contrast it to like Joffrey, who his main sin in this, this particular chapter is that he hasn't got that distinction yet. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't give a shit. I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't think it matters. And yeah. like Tyrion's like, yeah, but you got to do it for the sake of the form, you know, whereas yeah. the Lannisters are all speaking about God and the gods and this and that and playing lip service. But they clearly, you know, it it's it's not the same as a Septon, you know. That's right. In that way, Joffrey sort of learned that lesson from Robert because Robert, Robert is sort of this one note singer as well. He doesn't sure. care. He doesn't care about looking good politically. He's the strongest mm -hmm. man in the realm. Um, right. That's how he views himself. And he's proven it. And so he's going to say whatever he wants to say. He's going to sleep with whoever he wants to sleep with. Uh, he doesn't care what people think because let them say what they're going to say. And I think that Joffrey mm -hmm. thinks, yeah, that's that's what it looks like to be a king. Uh, I'm, I'm the most powerful. And so I'm just going to say what I want to say. Tyrion, people like Tyrion and Jamie have learned... Have lived a little bit more. They've learned other lessons. All right. So book differences versus show differences. A lot of the dialogue between these Lannisters are pretty well represented in the show. Um, one thing I did note was that this Tyrion's bookishness is played up a lot more with Martin than it is in, in, in the HBO adaptation. We get a lot of Tyrion's hedonism in the show yes yeah we don't get we, we get sort of a hint a, a nod and a wink toward his bookishness um but not nearly as much as the other thing no like i mean you know, he's we, he's got the the line later that he gives a john that like you know a, a book is like a whetstone and my weapon is my mind and etc mm -hmm. etc et but like yeah. It's almost like uh, they wanted to really make an impression on us, and they made a big impression with the manner of Tyrion's. You know, he's 
He's uh, he's living like he wants to die with a girl's mouth around his cock as he's drinking an improbable <laughs> amount of alcohol. Um, and then later they start adding in the nuance where, mm. you know, he he's this guy who's like very smart and brainy and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know. That's probably I mean, I, I think that's. I'll actually give the the double D some credit. I think they're pretty good adapt, uh, uh, pretty good at adapting written material to to the screen because you want to have like these big splashy introductions and then fill it in. You know, it's kind of like uh, they an adaptation um, is kind of like a Bob Ross painting where like you it's sometimes you're better off just splashing onto huge blotches of colors and then you add the shade and then you add the shapes and then you drag your knife down and shade the mountainside and it gets better. Whereas in the book, you can kind of like paint more in the details, like just, just, Hey, here's a twig and here's the leaves and mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to become a tree because just the pacing and the way we absorb that information is is different but in in a visual medium you want to hit someone with a face and an indelible image and they certainly did that whereas you know if he just if, imagine the same thing entering yeah i, I think I, I prefer it that way because like i'm trying to think of like literally following him where he's getting up uh you know all this stuff happening in his head where he's judging the septon for what he's reading and mentioning that it's all you know too stuffy and that's why i fell asleep we miss all that because there's no way to communicate it and he's tiptoeing down a staircase. It's like, yeah, I, I they, they probably did the smart thing. I was interviewing Jenna Matthews. She said something I never considered, but I think is totally true. That er- in the early stages of Game of Thrones, uh, the showrunners are really trying to capture a certain demographic of male and <laughs> and specifically uh, capture the male gaze in in the way that they're portraying sex on screen. And so mm-hmm. it's not just it's not just sex. It's sex that would sort of bespeak soft porn or something like that. So right. they're trying to draw a certain kind of audience member. And they're using Tyrion in this way a few different in a few different cases. And so, mm-hmm. wh- you know, what's going to excite people about Tyrion? Well, he's, you know, he's he's polyamorous. Uh, what's not going to excite people about Tyrion? He'll outread a Septon. You know, that's just right. not nearly as sexy to know yeah, that yeah, about yeah. Tyrion. I wanted to ask you this question because a lot of people have opinions about it. Uh, there, there are differences between the way the actors look versus the way that they're described in the book. And maybe Tyrion is the most significant of these. Um, so, and, and, and I feel like people are pretty divided. Some people would rather the book description be portrayed on the screen but then there are a lot of people that are pretty happy with with Dinklage and maybe think it he's a better character because he's because he's as handsome as Peter Dinklage. What do you think? I think that we are blessed that we had an actor who had made a point to not just do dwarf roles to pass on some that might that, that that go for things that were substance to work on his craft to do things mm. amazing little sketches of how it feels to be a little person in something like the station agent which i, I don't know if you've seen but like if you oh, want to yeah, see fantastic. a fucking powerhouse dinklage performance check that out and we had this guy who had been quietly doing all these things to make himself like the ultimate Tyrion. yes he is too handsome 
but you got to be pretty picky if you want to go and find uh, a little person actor who is physically deformed and you know has got a hunchback and walks with like you know, like and and also can act um in this extraordinarily uh, brave and human fashion like i mm. boy i don't know because like, the thing is is like you have it's the way we relate to characters in books are is more kind of like an altruistic way we interface with them like on their intellectual and soul level we see their inner thoughts we can see their we can literally see their inner beauty with their eyes because that's how we see them through their thoughts and their we're on the screen we um interface with characters the way we do in real life which means unfortunately conventional people get the shaft yeah i think so you know? too and I, I first i think i'm able to hold both images in my mind as i'm reading i mean i certainly mm-hmm. see dinklage when i'm reading Tyrion. i'll kind of switch over to this character as as he is you know meant to be depicted in the book so i'm almost holding these two images simultaneously whereas with someone like cersei i only see lena hetty that's the only thing i see when i read cersei sure well and i've always i've also thought too that like some of these are like how sure are we that these characters are actually as disgusting as they're portrayed because you know we hear that Arya. In early goings, is horse faced and mm-hmm. long faced and manly faced and gaunt and gangly and un. But yet, we also hear that she favors her aunt Lyanna, who is one of the most beautiful. Was, was consensus one of the most beautiful women in the Seven Kingdoms? Right. You know, we're told that Brienne is ugly because she's mannish and she's brutish and she's got thick lips and a broad smile and beautiful golden hair. And large, luminous eyes. And I'm thinking, like, really? Like, this could easily be a Julia Roberts type or right. a Carly Simon type. But is she ugly because she's defying the conventional stereotypes? Is she a bit like, is it she's she's a threat in the same way that, like, it turns out Arya is probably very beautiful. But her sister's just kind of a prick. And all of her ladies at waiting are picking on her. And, you know... They're they're doing the mean girl thing where they're tearing her down. So it's like every time I read characters are supposedly hideous and then I see them, you know, portray like, you know, Brienne is portrayed by the quite pretty Gwendolyn Christie. I always think it's like, well, that's that's where the prejudices of the time are meeting with the reality, which these people might not be that ugly at all. It's just that's what people are saying about them because they're trying to run them down. And I don't know to what extent, like, you know, they're pretty graphic and that Tyrion's hunchbacked and he's kind of twisted and he's got a fucked up gait and mismatched eyes and some stuff like that. But like, I, is that more of him, you know, like, like the rumors of him having monstrous animal features and bat wings and Tate, like, is that just like the most ridiculous form of that to where he's internalized those thoughts about people? And maybe mm. he is more Peter Dinklage conventionally handsome. It's just that we don't people can't seem that way because he's a stunted dwarf, you know. I've never heard anyone criticize Dinklage's British accent, but I find it wanting. I, I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies, but eh, I can tell you're you're trying to make this accent work and it's not quite working. Has that ever occurred to you? No, it hasn't. Um, like I never, like for instance, like um, uh, who who plays Jamie Nikolai Kostoff? Is that Koster Waldau? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wal- Waldau, yeah. I mean that that. I mean, I just I've never questioned his anything about his performance. 
Um, uh-huh. Sometimes I, I love, look, I love Dinklage. I know he's really an important character. We all celebrate Peter Dinklage. Uh-huh. But at times, I feel like, eh, I, w- I really wish, I really wish they would have found a, a British actor for this role, just for that reason. I know that I know for a, a, what they've said that in retrospect, everyone loves Dinklage, but when they were casting, he was the only person on the list. You know, he tried out for the part. They didn't try out anyone else for the part. Well, I could. I'll admit that maybe I'm a too much of a Dinklage. Um defender because his work his voice work in destiny as the the robot ghost is almost universally reviled and i quite enjoyed it so (laughs) maybe i just maybe i just love the way the man's voice the way the man's voice sounds well these faux brit faux british slightly mechanical i'll take it whatever yeah you just want him reading fairy tales as you drift off to sleep yeah can he be my gps navigator (laughs) all right Uh Uh, we we will end with this question in all of the books any character in all of ice and fire the character that your friends and family think you are versus the character deep down inside you know you are so it's a two-part question Oh man, I, there's no way I can answer this without making myself seem like I'm just a giant asshole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what we want, Aaron. Uh, okay, want here's where I'm going to bounce it out. I, I, I think my friend, I, th- I think my friends and family probably would choose Tyrion. Okay, because I am pretty. She's got a sharp sharp tongue i do like to read a lot i do like to expound on you know i mean fuck i'm not telling tales on myself i think i tend to be pretty uh i can be a blowhard and and opine about stuff and um and then to bounce it out i'll say i deep down think i'm moon boy uh <laughs> 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 um because that because i don't think i don't i don't think that that highly of myself um let me see. Who's a character that's very conflict? Who's a character? Because like I, I'm trying to think of the character that's very conflicted and might have a decent amount of abilities, but always second, uh, uh, second guesses and doubts themselves. Because that's who would that be? Um, who? Are, yeah. Well, Sansa. Sansa has more ability than she knows. Yeah, Arya she started does. off life pretty Eric. Yeah, Arya, 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 does she really doubt herself? I'm, I'm thinking like maybe later books, Melisandre. Yeah, go ahead, Melisandre. Go ahead. I Mel- Mel- late, books, Mel- late books, Melisandre might be good because like, you know, like her, I, I grew up uh, very devout and firing my beliefs and uh-huh. then was proven wrong about everything. And then lately wonder like, gee, we, gee whiz, what is the best use of my time? Uh, yeah. uh, what should I be talking about? What what action should I champion? Uh, I've been wrong about everything. Should I do I even have the right to open my mouth about anything? That's that's a pretty that's a pretty good Aaron analog. Yeah, Mel starts out pretty certain about herself and then sort of drifts into doubt. But she doesn't doubt that she has a sort of a political role to play. Uh, mm. that's interesting. I would have, you know what? I would have never made that connection between you and Mel. So <laughs> as, as, as a member of my friends and family, yeah. how, how would you identify me? Um, well, I mean, I think you're kind of classic Tyrion. 
And so, so it, it really does work with what you were just saying. I was just wondering, like, if I wanted a podcast in the world of Westeros, and I wanted two characters to start a podcast, Tyrion would definitely be one of these characters. Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, Tyrion works for you. And it makes sense to me that, that you don't see yourself as Tyrion in that way. But, you know, you drink and know things. That, that, that's that's a very Aaron, <laughs> you know, Aaron yeah, slogan. That, like a couple birthdays back, uh, my mother-in-law got me that T-shirt for my birthday. So it's like. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It works. It works. All right, man. Well, um, I w- gosh, I, I, I probably speak for 30,000 people when I say it's just really fun to hear your voice on this this feed again. Yeah. It's a privilege. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, my reread of the the early goings of Game of Thrones. I guess Kindle tells me I'm like already 15% of the way through it, uh, <laughs> just at the chapter nine. So really pulling for you. Um, I hope that people are enjoying it as as, as much as I did. And uh, who knows? Maybe uh, I'll pop back up again in the future. Well, any like I say, anytime more of you, less of me would really <laughs> would really do wonders for this particular podcast. We'll see. I, I think you got a. I think you got a pretty strong brand. What? Let me ask you that same question, just out of curiosity. Yeah. Who do you see yourself as? Who do you think your friends will see yourself as? Well, I've been asked this before, and here's what I said. I think that the character that my colleagues, friends, and family would probably see me as is Varys. Because, really? yeah, I think so. Because I, I think Varys keeps his cards very close to himself, but he's always very polite. He's politically savvy, and I think mm-hmm. I think some people, uh, because I can be sort of an interior creature, I think mm-hmm. some people can be a little suspicious. Like, mm, what is he really thinking? Or you know, uh, you know, can we really trust him? Uh, so, so Varys, I think, was would be what how other people would view me. Also, I, I don't have a whole lot of hair, and if I could, I would always walk around in, in flowing robes. That that just seems oh, yeah. fantastic and, to me. And padded silk slippers. <laughs> um, the character I feel like deep down inside is Arya, and that's basically because of just sort of being the black sheep of the family, sort of being isolated from my family, uh, you know, be, geographically. You're the black sheep of your family? Well, I mean, you're the blackfish of the Ladon household. I, I am a little blackfish, yeah, because um, <laughs> I have I, I have six. There are six siblings in my family, big Italian family. They all live within about an hour of each other in California, and I'm the only uh, one. You're the one that is. I'm like I'm escaped across the the narrow sea. I'm, I'm somewhere else doing something else. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, a little bit, a little got bit. A, you got way. your, you got your gold forked beard and your blue mustache, and <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> your strange, your strange dress and 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 grooming habits. Now, yeah, part of I this is it. because I just love Arya. I mean, she's she's easily my favorite character, um, and she's uh, she's also a character that can kind of put on a different visage from time to time, so she doesn't reveal what's going on sure. in her internal world. All right, man. Mm-hmm. I think we covered some ground. Okay. Awesome. No, I think uh, we we made a meal out of the six pages. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now Steve and I talk about the final two episodes. Steve. Yes, sir. Do you lay awake at night fearing my gash? (laughs) Yeah, that was quite the back and forth, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of Varys. Um, Yeah, yeah. I suppose you could say I'm a little bit like Varys. Yeah. Um, Uh, In in a few ways. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Are any of them biological? Yes, but I'm not going to tell you which ways. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to lie awake at night. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I, I'd like to open this to you. We're covering the last two episodes of season one. And I'm just going to open this to you, Steve. What do you want to talk about? Surprising from a um, production perspective mm, that um, that the way Baylor ended that that wouldn't be the, the season final. finale. Yeah. The season yeah. finale. Right. So, so it would, so you, you were wise to, to want to combine these, right. At least from mm. a, uh, from a, my viewing perspective, but I did feel like you could have just ended right there. Right. I mean, I and, think it's genius. I think it's like, they're saying to the audience, no, this isn't even the season finale. We've got right. something else in store for the season finale. I agree with that. But there was aspects of the season finale that felt like the first episode of a, yeah. of a new season. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, you know, again, I've grown accustomed to who shot JR type season finales, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's... So, the- I mean, there was some resolution there, but it was it was a sort of resolution that it was sort of like, well, now where do they go with this? Like, yeah, when that, Joffrey that- says, Sir Ellen, bring me his head, Sansa faints, Cersei... Cersei's losing her shit. She's yeah. screaming. Everyone but the headsman, basically, and the hound. They're they're like they're pretty stoic, but everyone else is just totally losing it. So this is I mean, this is a big moment, right? I mean, this is a this is this is why you just don't you shouldn't let teenagers do anything and have any agency whatsoever. <laughs> Cause I mean Look, let's just forget about the fact that he's hideous, but let's just go. I was just thinking that he has had unwarranted entitlement because he's such a good-looking young man. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the case. (laughs) I think we talked about this last week. The children speak as as they're doing impressions of adults. Yeah, sure. This is a a perfect example of that, right? It's like, hey, I got to establish myself as this type of leader right now. And... You know, and and it does reek of of a youthful naivete, but at the same time, it's like it's not outside of the this type of world that a king would behave that way. Well, that's right, and I mean, Joffrey's a moral monster. We know that already, and right. yet, would you be comfortable with any teenage boy having unlimited autocracy? I mean, any any kind of teenage boy with fully authoritarian power. He's he's gonna play with it. I mean, he's gonna see what the limits are. He's gonna see how what what it feels like to behead some fool. Yeah, I mean, he's he's uh he's awful. 
and so you, uh, he's a unique creature. He, I mean, he's a he's a beautiful yeah. but dangerous beast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like a blind salamander that you find when digging. Um, uh, interestingly enough, when Varys is talking with Ned about why he did what he did, it was something like, "What madness led you to tell the queen what you had learned?" And he says, "The madness of mercy." Right. He thought that if he told Cersei that he knew that he was going to tell Robert, then she would hightail it out of King's Landing with all of her children, and maybe the children could be spared because Robert right. was just going to kill kill them all. Right. Because that's kind of Robert. Robert likes to do such things. Right. Um, and so he was actually trying to save Joffrey's life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. Arya is running away. And we meet a character. I don't know if you caught his name. He's the little fat boy that she intimidates. Yeah. Did you catch his name? His name? Uh, I, I don't recall. His name is Hot Pie. Hot <laughs> That's awesome. And he, he will return in season two. Oh, good. Uh, so I, I just thought if you hadn't caught that, maybe you'd like to know that his oh, name's Hot boy. Pie. That's amazing. Uh, Shaga's Axe. Shag likes axes. Yeah, man, that was yeah. I watched that scene twice at least. Just the <laughs> it's the way it's said. I mean, uh, Tyrion's just Shag likes axes. Just <laughs> there's a huge father son theme. We meet Walder Frey. He's the old lecherous guy who uh, has too many sons and he wants to marry yeah. his daughters off. Yeah. Um, he's he's a treat. He's just a treat. <laughs> Um, so he, you've got him showcasing his fatherly capabilities and you've got Rob and Ned, the Rob and Ned thing. So Rob's going to try to save his father. You've got Tywin in that episode. You, you have Tyrion's story of how Tywin dealt with this woman that he had married when he right. was a young man. And I think that whether by either metaphor or... Uh, you know, despite literal gender assignment, I think Ned and Arya kind of fit into this father-son theme as well. And what happens is, because of Ned's actions and what happens to Ned, then the question next is, what's going to happen to Arya? Right. It, it, what is Ned's legacy for his children? And immediately you kind of get the sense that, okay, Arya is just, she's completely unanchored. She's adrift. Her life is in danger. And immediately in the next episode, she gets grabbed by Yorin and he very helpfully reassigns her gender for her. Right. So I think that there's a big father-son theme here. And I, I think that the question we're supposed to be asking is, what have the fathers done that will either improve the prospects of their sons or are the sons just sort of living with the consequences of the father's sins or stupidity or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah. That definitely permeates. Right. And that's, and that's where the complicated decision-making comes into play. And then of course, then we've got the, the elimination of both father and son in the Dothraki narrative. Yeah, absolutely. That's and right. So, so, so you have a hard reset, yeah. right? A hard reset where, yeah. Essentially, she both kills her her husband and mm. her son. In one respect, 
one seemed more like, oops, I didn't realize that was the exchange. But on the other hand, I don't, I don't know. I think that she kind of knew what she was trading. I mean, she, yeah. the, the horse thing was sort of a relief to her, but she, I think she was before Mary Mazdor says, bring me his horse. I kind of feel like she's willing to trade almost anything for Drogo's yeah. life. Right. And so that brings up a question too. And this is something that, uh, and I found out that my wife who had watched the first season, she only made it to um, the, <laughs> she made it through the final episode, but not, she never finished the final episode. <laughs> she got to the point where Joffrey said, look at your father's head. And then she had to pause it and do something. And then our subscription ran out. <laughs> So that was, that's a good way to end the season right there. <laughs> exactly. So that was pretty funny. Uh, so she was not super thrilled, but I was like, yeah, we're going to end it right here. Uh, she's like, well, we can watch the next season, like right now. And I'm like, ah, I got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I have a question uh, for Heather. Okay. Is she there? I can summon her. Hey, Heather, you have a sec? Okay. <laughs> Hi, Heather. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? I am pooped. You are? Yes, I'm weeding the lawn. I've got a question for you about Game of Thrones. Okay, go for it. I know that you don't enjoy watching sweaty people on screen. <laughs> and there were a lot of sweaty. There were a lot of sweaty people in the show, and I'm just I did that. How, how did you? How did you navigate that? So there's um, two types of sweaty movies. There's the sweaty movie where they're sweating because they have, they have like a ton of makeup on and the um, lighting is so hot that they look oily and sweaty and very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> but when it's through you're sweating because you're in a battle or climax, rocks, it's like they're not, they're not caked on with tons the of The sweat makeup. has to be believable. Yeah. I don't like when it's, you can just tell they're suffering under the, the lights of the, the movie set. <laughs> so what about like Cool Hand Luke? Because there's a lot of sweaty oh, God. men in that movie. Yeah, see, that's the sweatiest movie of all time. And it it's, they're wearing like so much makeup. And you can tell that there's like a ton of lights in the studio. And the studio is a thousand degrees. And so they're sweating in, in scenes they're not even supposed to be sweating in because it's just so hot in there. And then it's just, I start to feel like I can't breathe because I feel sorry for them that they can't that they're kind of suffocating under the lights. So, so then I get uncomfortable. In your view, the Dothraki, the, the, the sweat was believable on the Dothraki. Yeah. And, you know, if they weren't sweating, you would feel like they weren't, you weren't mm. like in the movie, but it wasn't that it was because there were no, you know, actor rights back then. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that was my question. All right. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Bye. There you have it. I'm glad I asked. All right, let me ask you this, because I've been dying to ask. So we established that in our first conversation that you had not watched much Game of Thrones, if any, at all. Yeah, none. But you kind of had heard a bit about Game of Thrones in pop culture, right? Yeah, I mean, I understand that there's a Starbucks uh, scene that's important. Yeah, exactly. So then I guess the it's question is... It's hard to is, do product placement when it's taking place. In, it is. Uh, it's difficult. Time. It's difficult, but you can do it. You can make it. In 2011, a lot of people were talking about Ned's beheading. Mm. 
So were you surprised that Ned got beheaded? Did you know that? Did you know that he was going to die? Well, my assumption is everybody dies in uh, Game of Thrones. Like that's kind of the. I I never knew. I didn't engage in conversations, but it seemed like a running theme was like more people are dying that we're connecting to. Mm. I was a little surprised that it happened that early. Yeah, but what I'm asking is, were you successfully isolated from fan talk so that you did oh, yeah, not I didn't know, know the outcome? There's, I don't, I don't know that there's. I, I will say there's probably like maybe one episode that I'm pretty confident won't have the effect that it should or that it did for other people because it was such uh, a talked about thing. Which um, is that? Uh, the Red Wedding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that was a thing. That was a cultural moment. But right. um, so I won't have the, the same reaction sure, sure, sure. that everybody else did. I, and I don't know a lot of specifics. I just know it's voluminous. You so. just, yeah, yeah. A lot of people die. Um, right. So, I, so and, and like I said, I, the, the expectation that I have is that because of people talking about people dying, that, you know, don't fall in love with anybody. They'll only break your heart kind of a thing. <laughs> I was a little surprised to see Drogo and Ned so quickly. So you were genuinely unaware that Ned was going to die at the end of season one. Right. Okay. Well, as we got, as it. we got to, it, but as we got to it, I was like, I I expected his death because of the show that I was mm-hmm. watching, not because I anticipated him because I knew he was going to die. So here's another uh, interesting development that I think it's underplayed is that when we get to Baylor, they do something with Jamie that makes me start to be really interested in him as a complex character. I think before that, he was sort of like, yeah, he's the classic villain. Right. I mean, episode one, he pushes a kid out the window, right? Yeah, exactly. But his conversations with Rob and, and, and Catelyn, for some reason, I'm starting to be invested in him in a way I wasn't before. And Well, and I, is it, do you think it's partly because of just the Lannister narrative is, is opening up through Tyrion's discussions and then by getting a little bit more of a glimpse of, of Tywin that if you can, uh, if you can empathize with Tyrion, then to a certain degree, you almost have to start to allow yourself to understand Jamie. I think so. I think that they're laying good groundwork for him. There's interesting things about his character that get revealed here. Number one, He's honest about pushing Bran out the window. And, and, yeah. And Catelyn says, why? And he says, I had hoped the fall would kill him. Right. So, so there's this, this weird honesty thing that, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not a snake in the grass in the way that someone else might be. And then she says something about uh, if, if the gods are just, you'll be in the lowest level of hell or something. And he really calls her out on this and says, what, which gods are you talking about? Like, there are no gods that are going to that they care about justice. The right. tree gods aren't, aren't going to help you. So what, what, what are we even talking about? So he's got this sort of interesting um, self-awareness and commentary on the social structures around Catelyn and Rob that seem a little bit almost refreshing. I, I don't well, we've seen it with when it comes to like his fighting, right? He didn't want any interruption. He was going to win on his own terms. Yeah, he's he wanted- got yeah, he's got his own sense of uh, the man he is, and he's not going to. He's very proud of the man he is. 
well, and he's and it's almost it's almost a detriment to him that he's a Lannister, and it feels like he's trying to carve out this this sense of you know his identity. What you know, his identity was set with his last name, mm-hmm. yet um, the perception of him is that you know he's a Lannister first and he's Jamie second. And and you get that sense of like, mm. so maybe that level of honesty is like, it, it, I feel like he doesn't want to believe that anything he's doing or getting away with is because uh, he can get away with it, but because he, uh, you know, by oh, virtue yeah, he wants of, to earn it. Right, right, right. He's like, hey, if I push your kid out a window, I push your kid out a window. And, I, and he doesn't, and he stops short of saying why, like what his motivation for wanting to kill the kid was, but like, so that's an interesting, I thought that was an interesting moment. Right. I mean, it's like, he's, he's honest to a point. He didn't say because he saw something he shouldn't have seen or whatever. He was, I want to kill him. So there's a moment there where you can see almost a level of honor kind of. And then, you know, if if you start looking at his own twisted sense of what he's in a lot of ways, I think he's, classically like uh nietzsche's ubermensch right like he views himself as like a, this artist he's you know he his, the artist sword player whatever but he's almost a god unto himself because what would the perception have been if he had said i was having sex with my sister <laughs> right i mean and and but that's very layered right does he hold that back because he's protecting her honor does he hold it back because he feels that that's a bit of a vulgar thing to throw a kid out of a window for that's where it becomes complex. Right. So like he, again, he's honest to a point he does, he sort of protects his family, whether mm-hmm. that was his intent or not. I mean, you look at Ned, Ned in prison and opts to be dishonest to try to protect his family. Jamie takes a different tack. I think that's probably the thing that I enjoy the most about a lot of what's going on is all the different juxtapositions and, and little callbacks. So Ned's gone, Drogo's gone. And we have this interesting exchange between Danny and Miri Mazdur, where she comes clean. People are just confessing left and right. This is like a, a Scooby-Doo episode. Um, yeah, it is. It is a lot of confession. And and she basically just says, uh, yeah, well, they shouldn't have burned down my God's temple. <laughs> that, right, was, yeah. that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they killed my favorite baker or whatever it was. <laughs> You don't don't kill my my baker. You don't be, cut you off kill my don't, baker. Gonna... Don't cut off my scone supply. <laughs> so she's an interesting character because I think that over the course of the season, we're really invested in Danny, right? And we're not in, invested in this woman who's having a bad hair day at all, right? Right. She looks like she's having a number of bad hair days uh, concurrently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's borrowed other people's bad hair yeah right uh we're not invested in her at all but in retrospect i have a lot of sympathy for her decision and her rationale basically i mean she's sort of a trickster right she's sure. she says look i i said i'd i'd preserve his life ultimately i did i did good because your child was going to be the stallion that mounts the world and now there's not going to be a conquest in that moment do you view her as a villain or do you view her as a savior? Ah, she's just another, she's just another piece in the game of Thrones. Right. I mean, that's the whole, the whole thing, right. I mean, morality and is, is being blurred. That's what I, I see with the whole concept of honor. What she's doing would be considered honorable 
for her legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's not a warrior, but she was able to, in her situation, she could have basically lived as a slave and been compliant. And what does that mean? She just means she's another spoil of war and maybe, maybe she's spared as opposed to, to murdered. So, but what's the, what's the difference? You're, you're barely, you're not even a footnote in history, but if you are in a position where you're spared and then you can be like, look, I just, I kind of leveled an army or at least a future one, mm-hmm. um, you know, and on for the, you know, for all the people that were left behind and all the people that were either enslaved or murdered, I, I'm I'm getting my revenge, and so that interesting thing when you when you pose villain or savior, I don't know that revenge falls into either one of those categories cleanly. Yeah, that's right. I was interviewing someone else recently who said that in Martin's world, the lines between justice and revenge are almost non-existent. It's not just that they're blurry; that there's these are category distinctions that just don't work. I'm not sure I quite go in for that, but in this case. You know, certainly she has been able to justify her actions. I think Miri Mazdur is like, yeah, I, yeah, of course. I tricked you. I killed your baby. And it probably saved thousands of lives. That's right. She ordered the code red and a few good men. She ordered the code red. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Yeah. Became a, a bit of a discussion topic uh, last night. Does uh, Daenerys know she's not going to get burned up? I think she knows. Okay. What was the uh, argument in your household? Um, well, it was just brought up as a, as a, as a question because you know my wife was, was took more of your stance, like. Yeah, you know, she didn't burn herself with dragon eggs. I'm like, yeah, but we all have like those one days where like, oh, I should have gotten hurt, but I didn't. I mean, that doesn't mean you just step <laughs> we in. We have there. those days where we, where we put our hands into the brazier and <laughs> we're completely fine. But I mean, there's a difference between, hey, these, these dragon eggs didn't leave a mark and um, I can walk into fire. Well, I guess they, okay. Uh, there's the other several... question was, okay, does go ahead. she know when she goes, even Amal, I'm willing to accept that she knew she wasn't going to burn. She know the eggs was going to hatch. Okay. Here's everything I know. Are you, are you ready? Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are several hints that were dropped. In the very first scene, she gets into a hot bath and... I don't know if it's in the book or in the show, but it's sort of like, hey, that's that water's too hot. Don't get in there. And then, yeah, she's fine. That's right. You know, I think that shows up in the first one. And then there's the egg scene, which you just mentioned. She shouldn't have been burned. When Vess gets his uh, his egg covered, gold, she says he's no dragon. A fire can't kill a dragon. Gotcha. So gotcha. she said. So there's something there. At least there's hints that she is. She's learning a little bit more about herself. Yeah, and then the the um, her baby was described as a dragon, essentially. That's right. And I think that in addition to that, we know sort of from these other books that Martin has written that in order to birth a dragon, there has to be a human sacrifice. Mm. And she straps Miri Mazdur to the pyre. Right, okay suggesting and she says i don't want to hear your screams i just want your life right um as if she's sort of intentionally she's got some sort of intentionality going on she hasn't 
she and jo- she has this sort of hold my beer moment where she looks at Jorah right before she walks onto the pyre. Right. She looks at him and she's he's like, I- I'm not gonna watch you climb onto that fire and burn. And she's like, Is that what you fear? And she just looks at him with like yeah, yeah. utter confidence. And she doesn't say hold my beer, but that's what she means. Yeah, no doubt. And then she gets onto the pyre. Um so I think she I don't think she's trying to commit suicide. I, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I just, my question was just like, was, was she, was this a, let's find out. Or was it like, I know what's about to happen. Yeah, I don't know. That's maybe here's what, how I think it works. And I'm willing to take the risk. Right, right. And yeah, because at this point, why not? I, got, I, have, I have enough anecdotal evidence to suggest. Uh, uh-huh. I, got, I got dragon. <laughs> So you got your dragons, man. The, drag, the dragons uh, yeah. showed up last after, scene of after the last all, episode. After, after all of this, and I'm all about political intrigue, they don't end it with Ned's head, which would no. have been probably more along the, ooh, this guy likes political intrigue. Let's yeah. chop off Ned's head. It's like, no, nope, we're going to end with dragons. Let's see if he's still in. <laughs> so the series that Martin wrote is called A Song of Ice and Fire. And that last episode, you see... John and the Night's Watch go north. Right. So they're going into the ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presumably to meet the ice monsters, right? Sure. And uh, which we meet in the very first scene. Exactly. I've made that comment. I'm like, here we go, right? I mean, we saw a glimpse of them so long ago, it seems, that it's surprising that, you know. So we're going to get more ice monsters, and we're going to get more dragons, and uh, (laughs) unfortunately, season two, we're also going to get a lot more Joffrey. Oh boy, this is going to really test my loyalties. For this week's Birds of View, I want to talk about Tywin's kids, all the kiddos sitting around the table at Winterfell talking about poor Bran and what befell Bran. How Brand befell himself, I don't know. Tywin's kids and uh, how they each relate to the problem of power. And I want to emphasize the phrase problem of power. I think that it's tempting to think of power as an absolute asset in the Game of Thrones. But I think that Martin's world is a bit more nuanced than this. I think power is necessary. Power is important. When it's used judiciously... It can serve the common good, but it's just as likely to ruin your life. Let's not forget that the Iron Throne is actually made from ruined swords. Uh, It is a metaphor. Whatever else it is, the Iron Throne is a metaphor. It's just as dangerous to be king in Martin's world as it is to be a farmer. And it might be more dangerous to be a king in Martin's world. So, interestingly, none of Tywin's kids become king. Although as Queen, Kingsguard, and Hand of the King, each one of these kids orbits the gravity of the Iron Throne in various ways. Tywin's kids are creatures that live in close proximity to power, and as such, they live with the problems of power. But Cersei, Jaime, and Tyrion each present differently. I have a sense that both Jaime and Tyrion sort of hate being Lannisters, for all of the obvious reasons. But both are resolved to play the hand that they've been dealt. Cersei mostly hates, or appears to hate, being married to Robert. This is sort of a unique powerlessness in the story, known only by women from very powerful families. 
Cersei, of course, wouldn't be married to Robert if not for Tywin's political agenda. Otherwise, I think Cersei embraces Tywin's pursuit of legacy in ways that the boys don't. And I wonder what sort of juggernaut Cersei and Tywin might have created if she was queen while her father was hand, and if Tywin actually took that supporting role seriously. Tyrion and Cersei actually have a lot in common, though they would probably be loath to admit it. Both have been undermined by their father and both carry the weight of his disapproval. But Tyrion is especially vexed. Tyrion knows that he literally cannot survive for very long outside of the Lannister folds. So even though he hates being a Lannister, he needs the power it affords him on a fundamental level. And let's be honest, he probably likes lording it over people from time to time. It's helpful to him. Uh, He can win arguments that way. He likes being wealthy. He likes the things that wealth brings. So he hates and needs to be a Lannister. Jamie is the one kid who probably could have been king if he wanted it. But Jamie is so committed to the art of sword play that running the kingdom sounds a bit boring to him. In a sense, he's attracted to a purer sort of power. And I'm putting pure here in scare quotes. It could be that contests on the battlefield have less to do with one's family name, and that is maybe attractive to Jamie. It's the one place where Jamie doesn't have to live in his father's shadow or play second fiddle to Cersei or Robert. Jamie would probably prefer to be a knight with a different family name. At the same time, he benefits from all sorts of power and remains almost oblivious to it. So while Tywin's kids live in proximity to power, and each themselves are powerful in a number of ways, they don't have the kind of power that Tywin himself has. Interestingly enough, one other member of the Lannister clan who's sitting at the table with Tywin's kids does indeed become king, and that is Tommen. Tommen's relationship to power is simply that he doesn't know what to do with it. He's simply there to be pushed around. And one might say that that is the most immoral or unethical approach to power, to simply have no backbone at all and let other more powerful people push you around. But that is somewhat debatable. So let me pose this question to you, book at baldmove.com. Which of these approaches to power is the most ethical, which is the least ethical? We have Tommen, who just gets pushed around, who really doesn't know what to do with the power. We've got Tyrion, who knows that it's kind of icky, but he kind of needs it, kind of likes it on some level. We've got Jaime, who totally shrugs it off, doesn't take the throne when he has an opportunity to do it. He would prefer not to have anything to do with it, but he benefits from it a great deal anyway. Or Cersei, who desperately wants power and might be able to do a lot with it, but probably selfishly, probably being sort of Tywin Jr. in that regard. Which of these characters takes the most ethical approach to the dirty little problem of power? Or maybe I frame this incorrectly or unhelpfully, and you'd like to help me reframe it. I'd love to hear from you book at baldmove.com. Again, my gratitude to you. If you've listened all the way to the end, you've made this a whole lot of fun for me.
next time on Electric Boogaloo. You know, how many people go into work and think, all right, these are all my enemies, and I need to get them before they get me. It's just not how people, normal people, live their lives. Well, I feel like that was a shot at me. <laughs>